All right, here we go. So speaking of judges going downhill from here, when I got my assignment, I was like, Gideon, all right, this is going to be easy, right? Gideon. And chapter 7 is, but then chapter 8 um, made me think, this is not so easy. Um, so we're going to do the best we can. So when I got Gideon and I started reading chapter 8, true confession, I did not remember chapter 8 in this part of Gideon's life. So I kept thinking, how do I summarize Gideon? Was he a good leader or was he a bad leader? Good judge, bad judge. Was he a man of faith or was he a fear-ridden failure? So as I started digging, I was looking through some sermon titles and one of them said, will the real Gideon please stand up? And I was like, that's how I feel. Who is Gideon? But then I was like, isn't that our life? How many of us have just had a solid run of a faith-filled life? And then things started making a little more sense, right? We have seasons of trusting God and where we feel like we are just really going, right? And then we have those seasons where it just feels like we're really giving in to our sin. So what I want to do today is make sure we look at the whole of Gideon's life and not just the parts we know. So chapter 7 starts, right? Starts with Gideon and his men rising early. They are going to take on the Midianites and they're going to do what God asked them to do. God has a very clear message from the Gideon from the beginning. Chapter 2 says, I'm sorry, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now that's curious, right? The Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east, they already have way, way more people than the Israelites. Yet God says, I don't want you to think for one second you had something to do with this. And the Israelites have had a problem with this, right? They keep forsaking God. They keep going back to their idol worship. God is saying, I want this to be miraculous. As believers, we know this, right? We are never to trust in ourselves or the strength of any human beings. We are only to boast in the power of God. Our minds immediately go to Paul's famous verse, right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God uses our weakness to boast his power. It is such a clear message today that a posture of weakness is what God uses to show his strength. That should be an encouragement to us. So God quickly whittles this army down to 300 men. And then I want us to really count out in verses 9 through 15. So we're going to read that. 7 verses 9 through 15. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura's servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, 
Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. It turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. This is hilarious. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. So the first thing that stands out to me is Gideon is afraid. We know he is afraid because God says, if you're afraid, take my servant and go down to the camp. He takes the servant and goes down to the camp. So we know Gideon's afraid. But I think fear really stood out to me because I don't really think of myself as a fearful person. However, I feel like the last year and a half, we have been so overrun with fear. Whether it's this virus we don't understand, whether it's our you know, fear of the presidency, big fear of mine was Afghanistan, is my husband about to have to fly over into this place where bombs are going off? And I just feel like I have experienced fear the past year and a half like I really never have. And so I kept looking at the story and thinking, I have neglected the truth. I have spent so much time the past year and a half reading headlines, reading articles, talking to my friends, but the one source of truth to fight this fear I neglected. So what I saw, the two things to be encouraged about this fear, one is fear did not disqualify Gideon from being a faithful leader. And two, God strengthened and encouraged Gideon when he was afraid. Now I read from the very trusty Google that the command, do not fear or fear not, is the most repeated command in the Bible. And it's probably because we are so prone to fear. And it's very easy to understand why Gideon was afraid, right? He has 300 men, and he is about to go up against an army that lines the valley like locusts, the camels are like sand on the seashore, and we know that Gideon is afraid, we understand it. But what is so important about this encounter is what we see about God. What does God do with Gideon when he is afraid? Does he kick him out and say, you can't be a leader anymore? Does he say, get out of here, Gideon, you can't be a part of my kingdom, you're not a Christian? No. God, our merciful, wise, compassionate, all-knowing God, knows that Gideon will be afraid, and he provides a way for Gideon to be strengthened. Now, God had already told Gideon that he had given the enemy into his hand. Gideon had everything he needed to know yet Gideon was still afraid. But how often do we do this? We know as believers that God is on our side. He promises he will take care of us. He promises he will provide for us. He gives us every single promise we need not to be afraid, yet we are still afraid. So I wanna challenge us today. What do we do with that fear? When we are afraid, do we dwell on it? Do we think about it? Do we let it paralyze us? Or do we lean into it? Do we confront it, confess it, and go to the source that can help us? Do we go to God's word to strengthen us? But I don't wanna stop at the fear. We are told we are to fight this fear. John Piper says this, 
We fight anxieties by fighting against unbelief and fighting for the faith in future grace. The way you fight this good fight is by meditating on God's assurances of future grace and by asking for the help of his spirit. We don't know how to meditate, do we? Every time we sit down, our phone dings, our watch dings, our TV is on, our kids are screaming. There are so many distractions. We do not know how to meditate on God's word, and we sure are not good at asking for help from the Holy Spirit. I also think this is another great plug for why we need community. We don't just need a warm body to listen to us. We need believers. We need believers in our life that can tell us when we are afraid, that we are looking too much at the fear of this world. We need believers that know God. We need believers that know where to find this truth and how to encourage us. Some of my favorite verses come from Psalm 37. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, we will fall. He shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil, do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. So when Gideon goes with his servant to hear this dream, he is strengthened. He sees God. He knows God. He believes God. And what happens? He immediately worships God. In verse 15, I feel like that is one of the most beautiful responses we see. He stops and he worships God. I wish we could hear what Gideon said in that moment. But it's true. When we have faith, when we believe, when we see the true character of God, we worship. I think that's a good question for us. When is the last time we were so overwhelmed by the character and the nature of our sovereign, holy, powerful God that we broke out in worship? I think that that could convict us. We've got to keep moving and get to the bizarre chapter 8 that... Um, I can't say that I fully understand, but what we see is we see Gideon continuing his mission, right? He is pursuing these two kings that have fled. Um, He goes, he chases them, he executes them. There is clearly tension between the tribes of Israel. These two cities don't give him bread, and then he tells them he's going to break down his tower, and there's just a lot of stuff, right? But we know at the end of chapter 8, that Gideon starts to disobey. And I think I kind of sidetracked myself because I just really wanted to pinpoint, when did it start? But we don't know, and that's not the point. I want to remind us of something that Janine said in the introduction. She said, Yahweh was king even though the people didn't acknowledge it. Let's see that play out. When the people of Israel asked Gideon to rule over them, It appears that Gideon answers correctly, right? What does he say in verse 23? I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. 
the Lord will rule over you. That's a great statement, great statement. But is that how Gideon acted? Is that how he lived? Is that how he led them? No, it's not. And we should understand this because as believers, we do this all the time. How many times do we say with our words that we're going to do something? We're going to follow God. We're going to trust God. We're not going to worship anything besides God. We're going to read our Bible every day. We are going to follow and trust and obey. Yet, we live a a different way, don't we? That's what happens here. Gideon says Yahweh is king, but we see Gideon start taking control. How do we know this? Well, it's interesting, I look back in Deuteronomy. As you remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell sermon. Moses is telling the Israelites how they are to live. In chapter 17, Moses gives the Israelites laws for kings. So if you ever have a king, this is what you're supposed to do. He did not want them to act like the foreign kings who clearly did not do what they were supposed to. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, Moses says, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the first thing we see Gideon do in disobedience to the law is what does he acquire from everybody? He gets all this gold, doesn't he? And he makes a golden ephod, which is a priestly garment, which is very bizarre, And we don't know why he did this, but he makes it very, very glamorous, right? We're told he gets, what is it, the the purple robes from the kings, and they get the crescent ornaments around the camel's necks. He makes this some big thing, right? So why did Gideon do this? We don't know. We don't know why he did it, but we know it wasn't good because what happened we are, we are given some very, very clear language. The people end up whoring after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Idol worship. They can't get away from it, can they? They keep forsaking God and going back to idol worship. Another way we know Gideon dis- is disobeying the law is how many wives did he have? One? No, we are told he has many wives. That was clearly forbidden. And he also had a concubine, which we know a concubine is not a real wife. It is someone that is there to gratify your selfish desires. And a lot of commentary suggests that this was a Canaanite woman. And then they have a child. They name him Abimelech. And we all know what Abimelech means, right? My father is king. So Gideon clearly goes off the rails. He clearly disobeys. He is living in sin. And as I read the story over and over, I kept thinking, what is this? No, Gideon, why are you doing this? And I was just so disappointed, partly because I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say about that, and partly because I was just disappointed. But then I was like, I think we're supposed to be disappointed, right? In our very hearts, in our very natures, how God created us, We know we need a king. We know we need a powerful king. We know we need a deliverer. We know we need a mediator. And this is how the Old Testament continually points us to Jesus. 
No human being could ultimately fulfill this role until Jesus comes along. Now, this is an encouragement and a warning. The warning is that no human being will be perfect. No human being will execute the role of deliverer, of king, of pastor, of teacher, of Bible study leader, perfectly. The encouragement is that everything in our soul screams for that perfect king, that perfect mediator, and we have that in Jesus Christ. So I have to be careful. There's part of me that I felt like I wanted to end Gideon with my, y'all know I love sports, my athletic, let's try harder, we've got to finish well, let's don't, let's don't blow it like Gideon did, right? Try harder, read your Bible more, sin less, do all the things to finish well. But that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is that Jesus does what you can't do. Jesus is the one who lives the perfect life, not us. Jesus is the one who pays for our sin, not us. Jesus is the one who will finish the work he started. One of my favorite theological truths is the perseverance of the saints. I remember learning about this in college, and it changed my life. Like I said, I always put a lot of pressure on myself to do all the things, to do all the things well, to do them right, But with that comes this just selfish desire of putting way too much merit in what I can accomplish. The beautiful truth of perseverance of the saints is not that the saint will persevere, but that God, through his spirit, will persevere the saint unto the end. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Perseverance of the saints depends not upon our own free will, but upon the unchanging decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. I know that was wordy, but what that means is that for those of us who are children of God, For those of us who have been called by God to faith in Christ through God's power, because God the Father does not change, he has placed a powerful call upon our life. And through Jesus, through his redeeming love, Christ lived the perfect life. He paid the perfect price for your sin, and the Holy Spirit will carry us to the end. That is the beauty of the perseverance of the saints. Heaven forbid we don't finish well and become a snare to those around us. But if we have the seal of the Holy Spirit, it will never be broken. And that's how we live without fear. It's kind of funny. If we take a step back and look at this story, we can see God's call upon Gideon's life. We can see God carrying him the whole way. God, in his kindness and love and mercy, carried Gideon. And this is really bizarre, but how is Gideon remembered in the New Testament? He is remembered in the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11. He doesn't deserve it. It doesn't make sense, but he's there. Herein lies the encouragement from Gideon's failed leadership. Remember in the opening when I said, will the real Gideon please stand up? The real Gideon is a sinner. 
and we are told a story of how sin got the best of him. It wasn't his weakness. It wasn't even his fear. It seems like it was his success. However, Gideon needs a savior. He needs someone to cover his sin. And that's what Jesus does for us and for Gideon. We have the privilege of seeing this whole story in the Bible from cover to cover. We see our great need for a Savior, and we see how God provided that for us. May we go forward in faith, and even in our fears, be strengthened and encouraged by the truth of his might and power that this Savior will save us and get rid of the problem of sin one beautiful and forever day. That should cause us to worship. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the whole story of Gideon's life. In so many ways, his failed leadership is an encouragement to us that it is not our merit that saves us. It is your son, Jesus, who saves us. God, would you please give us the freedom to live, to love, to serve you, that we would be content to serve in our weakness, for in our weakness is when you are strong. God, help us to be a community that encourages each other with your truth, that we point each other to your truth. We are so thankful for this church. We pray that you would guard this church and protect her, and that we would be a body of believers that is different. We love you so much. We pray that your spirit would convict us and guide us, and we're thankful that your Holy Spirit keeps us safe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.